Welcome to the Faithful and True Podcast. We're happy to be with you again today with our host, Dr. Greg Miller, and special guest, Elizabeth Griffin from the team here at Faithful and True. Elizabeth, welcome. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Well, we're, we're excited to have you. Uh, we were talking the other day and the subject came up. It's a fairly uh, popular subject that comes up when, uh, when you're dealing with our clients and questions that they have. And so uh, you agreed to come on with Greg and myself today to talk about fetishes. Absolutely. And, you know, what's, what's true is there's a lot of questions about that. You know, we've been doing a series on questions. And so maybe the question today would be, what is a fetish? What causes a fetish? Where do they come from? And the first thing that I want to say about this is, especially in the context of the men that we work with, for those who may have some sort of fetish association or behavior, there is significant shame that goes along with that. And so one of the things I'm hoping is in our conversation today, for those men that may be carrying a lot of shame, that we can help relieve them of that, that maybe we can give them new language or new context. The other thing that I would acknowledge is for women who have discovered that their spouses have a fetish behavior or association, that they also carry a lot of shame. And so I do want to just start by describing or defining exactly what is a fetish, um, and then we can go into some of the contributing factors that help formulate it. So let's just start with how would you define a fetish? Well, technically, a fetish is described or defined as having sexual arousal, sexual interest to an inanimate object or to parts of the body. Um, I would say prior to technology, we had kind of limited fetish behavior that we saw in clients. Uh, maybe sexual arousal to cross-dressing, wearing women's clothes, um, cross um, uh, sexual arousal or interest, particularly in feet or in stuffed animals. Um, what we now see with technology, as I was thinking about this mm -hmm. today, um, I was reading the intro to a book and it talks about that since the explosion of sexuality online, you can, we've seen people take almost any object or part of the body and oftentimes develop fetish behavior or sexual arousal and interest to that um, object or to that body part. So I would say right now they think that there are millions of fetish types behavior that we could not even begin to talk about in a half an hour. <laughs> right. Well, and part, part of that thing I think is helpful for men and then their wives to understand is typically an association comes somewhere out of our story. You know, we often say there's a reason why we are drawn to what we're drawn towards and so no matter what a person's fetish behavior is, typically there's some sort of association from the past that maybe has evolved over time. And then there's some sort of introduction to that object that um, was um, intensified because of the sexual association that eventually began to develop. So these, these don't just come out of thin air. And, and again, a phrase that we use a lot at Faithful of True is, 
given your story, it makes sense you would have these associations. And so let's understand your story so that we can begin to understand what's the meaning and messages that you associate with this particular body part or with this inanimate object. And so I think if someone, for... oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Now, I, I was, was just going to ask. Gonna say, so... <laughs> I think I think for a lot of men, they're able to eventually pinpoint back to an area. And again, prior to uh, the online world, we could almost always point back to maybe something in the childhood or some part of their story. It's been a little bit more difficult with technology because in the past, we thought that fetish behavior typically developed by the time you were an adolescent. And if you got through adolescence without fetish behavior, then it really never developed. That's no longer true. Um, I think that for a lot of men, they discover something in the online world and something gets triggered. Um, I still think that for a lot of men, it's about a piece of their story that gets triggered at a level they weren't even aware of. There is a huge debate in the field about where do fetishes, how do they get developed? And mm -hmm. um, there, there is one researcher that talks about, we don't even understand normal human sexual development yet. Uh, and we're just now beginning to look at fetish behavior and the processes of uh, the neurochemistry of the brain that maybe perhaps a genetic component. You know, we often see sex addiction in generations of families. Mm -hmm. Um, maybe there's a genetic component to some of the fetish behavior. Um, understanding on a, uh, uh, a brain level what's really going on in the brain during sexual arousal and how that gets connected when you're a child. So maybe you discovered as a young child that it felt good to rub your penis against a stuffed animal. What is it that some people will then develop a fetish behavior to stuffed animals and some won't? Mm -hmm. So we have probably more questions than answers, but I do believe that for a lot of the men we see, it often goes back to some piece of their story. Yeah. One, one of the things that I've heard a lot of associations with would be fabric that um, the associations with the way that silk would feel or a satin would feel. And many times it's about comfort. It's about safety. It's being a boy and discovering um, the laundry basket or um, some sort of association with the, the sheets or whatever. And it is some sort of connection that the brain makes. And it's almost as if the object neurochemical association and sexual arousal get blurred together and so it becomes difficult to distinguish so now fabric results in sexual arousal and so it also then releases the neurochemistry or if it begins with the neurochemistry then i begin the association of arousal with the fabric and so we may not know exactly what the entry point is but what we know is when the object sexual arousal and neurochemistry get blurred together it can easily result in association. And I also want to go back to something that you said, and that's the complexity of sexuality. Why some people might have very similar experiences, 
but it doesn't result in fetish behavior. And then for someone else, it does. And that's part of the mystery of sexual association. And my guess is that eventually we'll discover perhaps a genetic component to that. Um, it's just so complex, all the variables. I think about a client I had who grew up in an alcoholic family and his environment didn't feel safe when his father started drinking and his father was a really violent man. And so he would hide underneath his mother's, uh, underneath the covers of his mother's bed that had satin sheets. Mm -hmm. And during that time, he would also, he also discovered masturbation as a young child. And so that association between safety and comfort, and this is the only place I feel safe, became really paired together for him. So um, there's just so many variables that we don't understand yet, but we do understand that, um, that a lot of people experience fetish behavior and struggle with fetish behavior. And as you said, the shame of it. Mm -hmm. You know, one, okay. of, one of the entry points uh, that I like to use working with clients is the seven desires. We're to, to talk about, you know, is there a, a, one of the seven desires or several of the seven desires that unconsciously now are associated with this fetish behavior? So is this about being chosen or included? Is it about being affirmed or blessed? You know, whatever those seven might be for a person, but we would know that if one of the de desires or several of the desires are connected to the fetish behavior, it intensifies the energy behind it. Um, you know, I, one... I continue oh, to ahead. love the seven. I just love the seven desires in terms of um, thinking about how the fetish behavior is the inappropriate way to get that desire met mm -hmm. and understanding that can help to untangle mm -hmm. that hairball we often end up with. Right. You know, one of the associations, one of the fetishes that I've heard about um, comes from hosiery. And, you know, what's interesting is even that kind of dates a person because um, hosiery isn't as popular as it once was. But I've heard two different stories of men. One was a little boy who, again, came from a chaotic home. They had a kindergarten teacher that was kind and generous, and they would do their circle work, and he would sit next to the teacher, and he could feel the hose against his skin. And there wasn't, at that point, anything sexual. It truly was about comfort. But then when sexuality years later kicked in, that was the association that he had. Um, I know of another person who had an association or a fetish with hosiery, and his mother had a group of women that would come over and they would sit around the table and talk, and he would go underneath the table and he could feel, again, the skin, the hose, and there was just an association of safety and comfort surrounded by these women. And again, Early on, there was no sexuality that came later. And so mm -hmm. whatever it is that you have this association with, to recognize that there is something powerful for you. And I, I want to say it again. As soon as we make it about shame, we actually are giving the fetish behavior more power. You know, one of the things that came out about um, from the research that I did was part of what's driving the addiction is the shame itself. 
So the more shame I have, the more likely I will go back to it because I feel shame before I act out. I feel shame after I act out. But temporarily, the acting out is a reprieve from the shame. So for anyone who may have a fetish behavior, they've not talked to anybody about it, they don't feel safe to, part of the healing process is to find safe people that they can talk to the fetish behavior about because we know that's how we shed our shame. We, we, spe we speak, we experience truth in safe community. Exactly. I can't tell you the number of people I've had who have finally been able to share that in therapy and then in, in ways they can't begin to understand the behavior decreases or the need for the behavior. And I think that comes from that to be heard and to be understood mm -hmm. and to be accepted um, is just very powerful. And, and it's difficult because I think some people can even go to therapists and share maybe some really unusual fetish behavior like diapers or, you know, whatever it may be. And sometimes a therapist who is outside this field mm -hmm. does not know what to do with that. And so then in, in a well-meaning way, they'll say, well, I can't help you. I'm going to refer you, which, which again, just adds to right. the shame. And so I think to be able to find a therapist that can really help you understand the behavior and a community of men. I've seen a lot of men at Faithful and True who engage in cross-dressing behavior. And they're always afraid to tell their group about that uh, because they just feel like they're going to be ridiculed. Mm -hmm. And the healing that happens when you can tell a group of men about this and they may say, we don't understand this, but we want to support you and help us to under help you understand how this became um, such an important part of your arousal mm -hmm. map. Well, and what's true is the more I engage in the fetish behavior, the more I reinforce it. So yes. one of yes. the things to understand is the longer you've gone in engaging it, and there's no shame in this, but the longer you've been engaging the behavior, the more you've reinforced it neurochemically Therefore, the more support you're going to need to begin to change it. And so if you've been engaging it for years, it is naive to think that just a couple of conversations is suddenly going to set you free. That is going to be this ongoing support and community that makes that possible. And, and sometimes even medication can be helpful, but orgasm is a powerful reinforcer. Right. And so when you've had that experience, as you say, the longer, you know, for someone who's had fetish behavior since they were 12 years old and they're now 50, it's going to be much different than maybe someone who developed the behavior a year ago. Right. Uh, and so it is going to be a long road. But I do believe I always um, say that for people who have long term fetishes, no, it will never most likely completely go away in terms of your thinking process, but you can certainly learn to manage it mm -hmm. and, and not engage in the behavior and, and continue to have a sexually satisfying relationship with your wife. Right. You know? Well, in part, part of what we talk about here is that addiction is an attempt to meet a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. 
which would absolutely be true for a fetish. So if I can understand what is the legitimate need that I'm trying to meet through this specific fetish behavior, and then I begin to meet the legitimate need in legitimate ways, it makes sense that the power of the fetish behavior begins to diminish. And I, I affirm what you said, that an old association may never completely go away, but I find a way to steward it and to understand that even when I'm triggered into wanting the old fetish behavior, the trigger is trying to tell me about a legitimate need that can be met through a, a legitimate way or through a legitimate experience. Um, yeah. one, one of the questions that I would ask is, so we, you, you mentioned that fetishes can be associated with body parts. How do I know if I kind of transitioned, if I've kind of crossed a line so that I no longer am curious about a body part or interested in a body part or drawn towards a body part to now it's almost as if I'm, I'm more in that fetish category about certain body parts. Is there a point where I we make that transition? It's, it's a little bit like asking how many drinks do I need to drink in a week <laughs> to become an alcoholic? Yes. <laughs> you know, I think it's more about how are you feeling? Like, does it feel like you can enjoy sexuality without the focus on that body part? Mm. Um, you know, sometimes maybe some focus on that body part enhances your sexuality, but it's perfectly okay if you don't have, you know, a focus on that body mm. part. Or, you know, maybe it's it's about how to, am I feeling good about the sexual experience I'm engaging in with my wife. Is my wife feeling good mm -hmm. about this sexual experience? Does she feel like that all I'm do, doing is focusing on her feet? Right. And therefore, she doesn't feel like even who she is is important to, to you as part of the sexual experience. So I think that's why it takes a therapist to help you and your <clears throat> partner figure this out right. because I do believe that um, your your sexual partner needs to be part of this process because they need to also understand, you know, aspects of this. Now, that doesn't mean it occurs in the very start of treatment, but I think, you know, there are a lot of questions couples can talk about and ask and discuss during sexuality around like, how are you feeling? Mm -hmm. How am I feeling? Does it feel like I'm engaging in sex with a person or is my whole focus on that body part? Well, and maybe part of the criteria then is, so if fetishes are sexual arousal associated with an object, what ends up happening is we objectify that particular body part. And so it's no longer an engagement of the person. It's just this specific body part. And I think I think you're right. I think intuitively we know if something is off, if we are being yes. objectified. And so it may be the, in our case, working with the men, husbands have the courage to ask their uh, spouse, do you ever feel like I depersonalize you in our sexual experience or reduce you to simply being body parts um, and being able to have the courage in a non-defensive way to hear that answer? And, and to be able to just have the conversation, mm -hmm. I think. And again, that takes so much power out of the behavior or the interest in a certain body part, because now, 
you are sharing it, you're talking about it, and that really does reduce the shame. And I think men intuitively know the answer to that question mm. when they're being sexual uh, because they're objectifying something or if it's about the person. Now, oftentimes maybe don't want to listen to the answer or know that, but I think therapy is about increasing that where, awareness to the point that you can engage in any uh, in sexuality without asking yourself right. that question. You know, I had a client say to me, like, it feels like, you know, you're just sitting on my shoulder, like punching at me to ask <laughs> myself that question. And I don't want you to be there when I am engaging in this behavior. But I think intuitively men learn to listen to that inner voice and more actively uh, pay attention to it through the process of mm -hmm. therapy. You know, um, I want to also highlight something that you said earlier, this awareness that um, for some men, the fetish behavior, though there may be some connection to the past, the connection isn't like a straight line. It really maybe began with the um, associations that occurred through the Internet. And so um, what might be the indicators that... Um, I now have this fetish behavior and maybe it was some neurochemical associations that began when I first was exposed to something on the internet. And, and I also want to say, I think we don't know yet for that group of men that it happens when they get online. Was there a little tripwire mm -hmm. inside that, that, you know, it's helpful to understand or did it just, you know, I've had men say to me, you know, I got on this website and it was about X, Y, and Z. And I was so fascinated, I couldn't turn it off. Right. And and now it's where I go all the time. And I and just like we talk about addiction, what are the earmarks? I can't stop thinking about it. I can't stop engaging in the behavior. I'm keeping it a secret. I'm not telling anyone that now I have this interest. And yet it is consuming every aspect of my life. I'm at work and have to go back to that website. Right. So I think it, it's very much like uh, just the addictive behavior itself. Um, the literature would not necessarily say this, and, and I don't want to say there's research to support this, but in many ways, fetish behavior is like addictive behavior. Mm -hmm. It is so all-consuming, and it's all you want to do, or it's all, the only way you want to engage in sexuality. So I think when you find yourself, in, and this is a new experience for you, the good news is if you can talk about it, and, you know, um, get some help with it right away. Those are certainly, I think, the easiest connections to break because they've not been connections for 25, 30 years. Uh, but again, mm -hmm. it takes a lot of courage to seek out a therapist and say, I'm interested in in this behavior. And, and it may be very unusual. It may be considered very bizarre. It may be considered really weird. You know, those are all things that clients are afraid of. And yet for someone who works in this field, um, it, it won't be. Right. It will be something like, yes, we hear this all the time yeah. about other types of objects. 
uh, that people become sexually interested in. And, mm-hmm. and we may never find the cause of it. Right. You know, some guys think they must have they have to follow that thread. Sometimes you just can't. There's just nothing you can. Re- but that really doesn't mean that you can't still get help. Right. There still is treatment and there are things that will be helpful. Well, when. One of the great principles of recovery is don't compare, identify. And so, you know, you were mentioning this guy that finally had the courage to talk about a fetish behavior in group. The reality is maybe I've not done that particular behavior, but there's parts of your story that I can identify with. The being out of control, the not being able to say no, um, the power of curiosity. And so even recognizing safe communities don't compare but they simply identify what part of your story do I relate to that is also my story. You know, one one image that came to my head as you were talking is several years ago um, when we lived in North Carolina, we were in this house. The yard was great, had nothing to do with me. We inherited <laughs> a good yard and um, we needed to do some plumbing done. And so they had to dig a trench. And so what happened was they dug up the grass where the trench was. They laid the pipe. They put the soil back down. But where the trench was, what grew there were just weeds. And um, I was talking to a landscaper that I knew, and I said, what's the deal? You know, why are there just weeds? And the guy said, well, what was happening was there were weed seeds in the soil that were dormant. And when they turned over the soil, they awakened the weeds. And for a lot of the men, and maybe this is the place, you know, for them, the seeds of the fetish was planted early on. And it was dormant, but something turned over the soil and it might have been introducing, finding it on the Internet. Now, one of the images that I use with men is sometimes on the Internet, you stumble into cocaine. You, you didn't even yes. know it existed. But as soon as you found it, you had this immediate neurochemical association with it. And so that may be part of what's true for men who struggle with fetishes is the seeds were planted early on then something came along later and turned the soil over and it awakened that seed. What we want men to know is no matter how they got to this place, we believe that there's hope and that there's a way forward and there's a way out of this space. Definitely. And I love that analogy. Such a great analogy. It's the nature and nurture, Mm -hmm. you know, that we think that there's always a combination of what we're born with, what we experience as a child. And then for some people that gets triggered and for other people that never gets triggered. Yeah. Mm hmm. Greg's the king of great analogies, Elizabeth. So (laughs) I know. I love that. I'm going to steal that. (laughs) Well, it. If you ever need one about finishing your bathroom, he's, uh, he, he can talk for extended periods of time. Well, Elizabeth, we, we want to thank you for joining us today on the Faithful and True podcast. I'm sure that uh, today's conversation has really been, uh, besides being out of the ordinary, very unique and very interesting. And we uh, appreciate your expertise and experience sharing with us today. Uh, Greg, any uh, parting comments you wanted to make as we yeah. end today's show? I just want to extend an invitation to any of our listeners who might feel like they are all alone, that nobody would ever understand. Maybe they are engaged in a fetish behavior. I want them to hear that Faithful and True is a safe space, that we can have conversations about that, that they're not alone. And I often say to the men that come to our workshop, there's probably nothing that you've done that someone on our staff has not heard about before. And so we can feel very alone in our shame. 
And that is part of the power of community. So if this is something that is a part of your story, um, find the resources, find the safe community so that you can find the freedom that you desire. And we'd invite them to visit faithfulandtrue.com where they will find uh, all of the opportunities uh, to uh, come to the Men's Journey Workshop, which we host every month here at Faithful and True. And uh, we'd love to have you join us. Uh, same thing for the spouses. Uh, three or four times a year, we host the Women's Journey Workshop. And then we also have the Couples Journey Workshop. All of that information is at faithfulandtrue.com, along with free resources like these podcasts. We have over 400 Faithful and True podcasts for you to listen to, view, uh, and benefit from the direction. Uh, until we join you again, Elizabeth, thank you for joining us. It's always great to have you on the show and uh, look forward to seeing you soon. Uh, Greg, thank you for the great job in leading the podcast as always. Uh, for those who have been joining us, we hope that this coming week will be a week that's filled with many blessings and with great vision.